0: Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people, and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I am here today on a fair autumn day in the valley of Matterdale nestled between Oldswater and the A66 with author, illustrator and our guide for today's wonder, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark.
1: <laughs> Hello, David. good to be back again. We've had a little bit of a pause, largely because of the weather, but we're back on track. And today we're with somebody special, not just to our listeners, but to me too, because we're talking about my natural environment, farming.
0: Yes, you have your background as a Cotswolds farmer. And today we're in Batterdale to meet one of Cumbria's most famous characters and certainly most famous farmers, it's James Rebanks. Fascinating man,
1: somebody who's been able to be quite a spokesperson for the way of life here and the values that will lead it forward into the future.
0: Yes, and this is off the back of the publication of his latest book, An English Pastoral, in which He does reflect back on farming as it was in his grandfather's time, the last generation, really, of traditional farming. Then goes on to look at the transition to modern industrial farming and some of the many problems that that's introduced, and then finishes the book by thinking how we move forward, how we can combine the best of that old-style farming that was much more friendly towards nature with the need for food from our landscapes. Um, you've read the book, Mark? I've read it. I'm in common now with literally
1: hundreds of thousands of people, which is remarkable. Mm. Uh, it's a remarkable achievement but in his prowess at writing, his eloquence and his ability to talk honestly about this landscape mm. and just bring it to life in a most remarkable way.
0: Now, when I got in touch with James, I said would you be able to go for a walk with Mark and myself? And he said, I don't really want to go for a walk. I want Mark to help me walling. (laughs) So he wants us to get busy on the farm today. So we're going to wander with James round his farm. We're going to see some of the projects that he's been undertaking to bring nature back to the farm and we're also going to help a little bit aren't we mark with some of the tasks that he's got uh, lined up for us
1: oh i'm looking forward to it I, I like a bit of hands-on so bring it on
0: let's go and meet james
1: I'm in the company of James at the moment. We're looking to Little Melfell across towards uh, Gowbarrow Fell and Great Meldum. And I just see a bit towards, oh, above Douthwaite Head area. Late morning, sun's coming through the clouds. Your earliest days were actually in the Eden Valley, about 15 or so miles from here.
2: That's right. I'm a, I'm a Little Strickland lad, really. Um, <laughs> and this was my grandfather's farm, so my childhood spanned two different farms, really. Uh, a, a farm on the Lowther Estate at Little Strickland. Which we love very much was home and then this farm that my grandfather had bought in the 1960s. In that Eden
1: Valley setting, you experienced a different kind of mixed farm, presumably? More mixed farm, more
2: cropping. Not more ploughing. More ploughing. My dad was an absolute grafter of a farm working man, really. Uh, not a sort of boss farmer He was just to get on and clip sheep and spread muck and do it all with your own hands, sort of a farmer. Uh, so yeah, the the farm I can first remember, my granddad had a field of oats and he had some potatoes and he had a bit of whole crop and a field of turnips and there was hay fields and there was silage fields and there was dairy cows and beef cows and three or four breeds of sheep and there was still some horses knocking about. So you had a whole diversity, a field of oats to feed the horses everything had a sort of part of the pattern and the point isn't that they were the most perfect farmers in history, the point is that you had a sort of patchwork quilt effect and that that. That actually kept a lot of wildlife going, going, we now know. But then, I'm one of my 46 years old, through my life, most of the land in the Eden Valley has ended up as grass, and you're ending up with a much more intensively managed grassland system. Um, But that patchwork has slowly disappeared, largely. Uh, You'd be hard-pressed to find a farm with as many things on as my grandfather had, and that was normal 40 years ago, 45 years ago. The sort of modernising happened there, because it could happen there sooner, and not as soon as in the bottom of the Eden Valley on those big, big, deep soils and big fields. But yeah, the, the changes to farming, have, I think, have happened at different speeds in different places, and I think one of the things that I was lucky to see was to see it at two different speeds, to see this old-fashioned farm, fell farm here then a slightly more modern farm there. Some of my neighbours from that other farm will laugh at the idea that it was modern. I think we were always a bit old-fashioned on both farms. <laughs> yeah, and your grandfather influenced you as well, didn't he? Yeah, I, was, he was, I used to follow him round and uh, it was a sort of classic farming situation really where my dad was probably doing all the work and I was swanning round as a sort of 10-year-old with my granddad thinking thinking we ruled the world. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, no, he was a great character and a lot, a lot of people listening to this podcast will, will remember he was called Huey Rebanks. He was very successful at training race horses out of his little farmyard at Little Strickland and had a couple of seconds at the Cheltenham Festival and yeah, real character, larger than life. And and his brother-in-law was Jack Pearson who was another famous Cumbrian character from Threlkeld, and they used to get into some real scrapes. I think they used to go racing on a Saturday and it was sometimes Tuesday before they got home, so...
1: (laughs) (laughs) So this... uh time actually you witnessed well what might say the twilight zone of a particular style of farming that had been going on for generations that's right
2: I think a lot of people think the big changes happened after the second world war and in some ways the new technologies did come then your tractors and your first sprays and things but the real size and speed and scale of farming changes that's a that's a 1980s 1990s 2000 thing um so things like on a typical dairy farm in Cumbria there was know, 50 50 to 100 maybe 150 cows if you're lucky on a big farm now they now they get into 500 or a thousand or two thousand in some cases. And your tractors were, I learnt to drive on a like a 35 horsepower tractor, but then there were 65, and then there were, I remember the first hundred horsepower tractor coming. And now you're, you're nobody with tractors if you don't have one that's 250 plus horsepower. No, so no. so the, the speed and the scale it isn't that those things were new. It's that the speed and the scale and the power of them has ramped up massively in my lifetime. Nobody told me. We went a family that used any other sort of technical terminology about farming but I now know it was a mixed rotational farm so mixed mixed crops mixed livestock uh, and rotational because they're all in a in a cycle and that cycle um, you know you grew your oats or whatever and then you put another crop in and that crop replaced the nutrients that the oats had taken out or you put it back into pasture and your cattle and sheep went on and there the combination of the the green grass crop and your animal manure and things put the fertility back so there was a whole logic to that there was a logic about how you built soil health and how you kept it healthy uh, and yes the the modern industrial farming that we've we've slowly moved towards in most of our landscapes that doesn't do that that cheats it basically cheats it brings in synthetic oil based uh even coal but coal based in some cases fertilizer in in china um and it enables you to cheat on the weed issue instead of having to go into another crop or grazing to kill off things like black grass, you, you spray black grass with a, with a sort of chemical uh, herbicide. Yeah, so we were given a we were given a number of ways to cheat and, and that's where I think it gets quite ethically and morally complicated because your average non-farmer listening to this hears the word pesticides and thinks dreadful and yet your average farmer's in a system where it's absolutely a staple part of what you do. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah and that's, that's where we need to stop and have a little think of it Absolutely.
1: I remember as a lad pulling out ragwork, like you mentioned in your book uh, on the sandier parts of our heavy liars clay and you did a lot of hard grafty
2: tasks that's right and, and anything I did I'm pretty sure my dad and granddad did even harder back in you know, previous generations but yeah and you carry the scars of it I have, I'm 46 years old I've got arthritis in my knee which my me, me doctor tells me I did too much when I was young um, my dad would laugh at this because I think he thought he worked a lot harder than I did. But uh, and then I have a, I have a slight curvature of the spine coming forward, and that apparently I did too much rough work when I was a teenager with a green spine. So um, yeah, you know I'm not, I'm not getting my fiddle out, but it's ama- amazing how hard people work. Now it's just a small part of that. Um, the key part of the truth is why did people ever pick up the first pesticides or anything? Because they were sick of thistles, they were sick of weeds in the grain. These seemed like miracle solutions at the time to age-old problems. Uh, I think we have to have a bit of empathy for why people would do that. Um, but what we also now know, of course, is we, we know why they did those things. and We can have a bit of empathy, but we also know that they didn't know much about the costs. They didn't know what it did to soil or to mycorrhizal fungi or uh, or what it might have done to rivers. we now in the situation where our miracle cures all look as if they're quite problematic and we mm. have to perhaps go back to some of the old ways or to tweak some of the new ways to give nature more of a chance. And uh, we're standing in a, in, in a dense pasture here.
1: What's distinctive about this particular pasture?
2: There's a lot of distinctive things about it that I didn't know for most of my life, to be honest, but we're, since we started working with botanists and other people, this is, these are some of the most diverse pastures in Britain. So there's, in this particular pasture, there's 50 to 60 different species of wildflowers and grasses. Uh, another one of the pastures, two fields up, there's 98 species of wildflowers, including some wild orchids. That's quite uh, remarkable. The, isn't it? They're incredibly diverse fields and we've sort of t- uh, taken it for granted for most of history, or it was a byproduct of our farming. And then we've maybe got into the last 30 or 40 years and we've been imp- thinking we've been improving and uh, often spoiling some of these very special things that we're in stewards of. So we're out in this pasture and you, you've got a
1: sledgehammer in your hand, what does that imply?
2: It, it's to keep uh, people interviewing me honest, if there's, too, <laughs> if there's too much cheek I can finish the interview fairly fast. <laughs> and the other aspect of it? Uh, we're just knocking in some stakes up this bank where at the moment we're changing the layout of our fields. Um, a lot of the old hedgerows have grown out so we're going to divide them up again. But we're going to work with some of the wetland and river experts and we're going to fence off some of our boggier, rushier, least productive bits. So we're going to have a wildlife corridor, a sort of wetland strip, running up this field that will divide one big pasture into two pastures.
1: I know once you make little corridors, what comes again in 10 years is
2: quite staggering, Absolutely I gather. Amazing. So you can see some down there at the bottom, there's some willowy scrub taking off. Yep. And I wasn't brought up to, to value or to look at or care much about things like willow, but... In the right places, it's an amazing habitat. It has its blossom early in the season for bees and things like that. So that's full of long tits at the moment. The sort of clouds of long tits seem to love uh, willow. So yeah, it'll take off. There'll be Aldo and willow, and just in sort of ten years of doing these kind of projects on the farm, we're seeing the number of uh, dragonflies and other things going through the roof. It's quite enough now for the autumn. Uh, a lot of the summer migrants have gone. The swallows have gone in the last week or so. I'm just waiting for things like the field fairs to come back, which is one of my favourite birds, actually. I used to be a summer man, but I think I'm shifting to, to enjoy winter these days.
1: Fabulous. It, it's all this friendship with nature is marvellous, because we realise, actually, once you do that, from bees to birds, they're actually
2: working with us, not against us. Any farmer coming in this field, I don't think they would have any complaints about my crop of grass. I've got no? tremendous deep, dark green crop of lush grass that's good for sheep. And if that's also couldn't be done in a way that's good for the soil and the nature, well, I'll, I'll, I'll step up and do that.
1: We're in a bit of a hollow here James and this is where you're fencing off
2: and uh, it looks like you've dug out a little pond yeah. and their purpose? We've been on this sort of journey for 10 or 15 years now where we're trying to put the nature back into the farm and one of the things that was drawn to my attention a couple of years ago that there was none of uh, was standing water, there's no ponds and I think one of the key questions we got to ask as land managers is, is what was this place before we got here uh, and we now we now know that its habitats what its habitats were and what it, we need as much of those as we can. Again, one of them is standing water, which is ponds and wetland scrapes and dew ponds. So, in the last two years, with working with Danny Teasdale at the Oldswater uh, Catchment Management Community mm-hmm. Interest Company, uh, we've put in about fifteen of these little dew ponds. We've put in five or six large ponds. Uh, some of them with Eden Rivers Trust and with the Environment Agency as well. And what we're basically trying to do is we're basically being pretend beavers at the moment. There's, uh, there's <laughs> You're no, beavering
1: th- in another way.
2: Yeah, we're, we're creating that habitat that would have been created once by beavers. And, <laughs> and beavers may or may not come back. That will be beyond my pay grade to decide that, but... Um, in the meantime, I think we can put a lot of those habitats back in, because where does a pond fit on my farm? Very easily in a rushy place where it's very low productivity and doesn't cost me very much. No, so. it's
1: ma- magic. You see the water boatmen, yeah. insects are on the surface. Oh, they... immediately brings life to the surface That's right. Isn't it? And
2: if, you're a, if you're a dragonfly, where, where better than this? You can lay your eggs just off them rushes into the water. You're going to have your larvae in there for the next two or three years, eating everything that can get the claws on. Um and then when they come back up to get into the sunshine to dry and break out of the sort of larval stage and become a dragonfly, off they go. And they got somewhere else to go to. Yeah, there's another one of these 20 feet down there then another one another 30 feet beyond it. And yeah, you can probably see down the farm we're building these wetland corridors with ribbons of scrub all the way down the, the rivers. And, and part of this is, let's be honest, there's a, it's sort of enlightened self-interest. If I work with the ecologists and the environmental people, I can get a farm that's well fenced and, and a farm that I can manage my grazing in and, and look after my soil better. So, we're constantly looking for win wins. So,
1: mind your fingers, in your youth, farming wasn't quite the thing for you somehow, but there must have been a, a moment when you realised actually it was for you.
2: Yeah, I wasn't. When I was maybe eight or nine years old, I wasn't the keenest. I was going out and working on the farm because my dad was quite a tough old cookie and, and made me, but. Um, yeah somewhere, somewhere in the next two or three years they are being told to go out turned into going out of my own volition and uh, I think the thing I really fell in love with and I'm, anyway, my sheep farming friends if they listen to this will laugh because I'm still the same now is uh, we bred uh, tups and sold them on the farm and it wasn't Herdwick tups then it was Suffolk tups and other things but uh, there was something about that I just really enjoyed. I enjoyed the, the banter, I enjoyed the skill Um yeah, now by the time I was twelve or thirteen, I was sort of elbowing my dad and my granddad out the way and looking after our best sheep and selling them to people when they came in the farmyard. And just like my daughter, I've a twelve-year-old daughter at the moment called B. She's very similar. So on Saturday when I was at the top sale, she couldn't go because of the COVID rules. But when I was away, she sold twenty hours and a top to some people from Clacton. And she's the proudest punch when I got home. Uh, <laughs>
1: she would be.
2: She'd done the deal. And uh, yeah, there's there's something in that where you think, hang on a minute, I, this is not a bad life. It's
1: Yeah, it's, it's instinctive. I mean, it's, and you've got a son, Isaac, who's keen as well.
2: Yeah, Isaac's keen. He's eight and then my daughter Molly's, um, she's more into her ponies and horse riding. But she, yeah, she still, I mean, she spent all weekend cleaning out our sheep shed and, telling me that we've got a scrow and we need to tidy it up a bit and show a bit more pride. So, yeah, they're, they're, they all play their role. Yeah, of course, scrow is a local term for
1: a, a mess. Uh, ponies and horses are part of
2: this landscape, aren't they? Yeah, totally. So, they're, I mean, this is a landscape made by hairy old cows and uh, herdwick sheep and fell ponies, isn't it? And all of those things have amazing communities around them, really, of tough old people that, have, that carry forward a lot of the sort of landscape culture of Cumbria, really, that I love and... Um, And there's other ways to love this landscape, of course there is. And I've become more forgiving of that as over the years. But uh, yeah, I really am from those people that sheep and cattle and horses and the love and even the intelligence involved in that. I was at Cockermouth Tup Sale on Saturday and at the Yow Sale the day before. Just the pride and the knowledge is, is a remarkable thing, really, a lovely thing. And it saddens me greatly when we move away from that kind of farming to something more industrial where there's less care and less passion involved.
1: It's this sense of bonded community. That all that knowledge is—it's not one individual holding it all. It's a shared passion that is and if you, if you, very rare. If
2: you'd seen the youngsters 20 years ago, if you'd asked me, I'd have said what I am is on the way out. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> uh, if you saw the 20-year-olds plus uh, at that top sale on Saturday, really key, every bit as keen as the grandfathers. There's something happened to young people in the Lake District in the last 10 or 20 years. They've really got their mojo back. I think they're connected up through social media and things, and they're reinforcing each other's sense of what matters. And I think maybe they The fight back, there, say. There's, yeah. a, there's a real fight back, and I think there's also annoyingness as well about... They've had older brothers or cousins that have gone to London and supposedly for a better life, and it, I think they've seen enough to know that isn't always true, <laughs> that you can end up working in Costas or pret a or something on very low wages, or going to university isn't always... Always everything that's cracked up to be. So I think, yeah, there's annoyingness among those kids that actually they live in a pretty special place and they're part of a pretty special history, part of a community, and then there's there's some things that matter in there. Talked to one or two youngsters on Saturday and I just, there was a fire in their eyes and I thought, get on. This this doesn't end with
1: me and my generation. This is is
2: going on and on.
1: This is fabulous. They always say, uh,
2: you don't own the land, it's the land that owns you. That's right. I think I've always been of the belief, and I, I write about this in my books. I think a lot of Cumbria, in a sense, belongs to lots of people way beyond our borders. There's something about the landscape of Cumbria that's made it to people what it is. Uh, There's a bluntness of speech, there's a a sort of rough, gruff matter-of-factness that I I personally like. There's also that thing in Cumbrian communities, isn't there, where you you wave to people on the road and you keep an eye, whether you like them or not, you keep an eye out for your neighbour and... um, yeah and like when my dad died five years ago we, we have neighbors we're not the best of friends with them but they would come to me within 24 hours of my dad dying and say can we help with anything on the farm or they would drop a cake off on your doorstep and you think that's all right we don't mm-hmm. have to be best mates the rest of the time but i'll, I'll not forget that no yeah. no this is it because someone on the line they'll need you and you'll no. need them that's right and i think it's i think it's quite a northern thing as well i think it's something to do with tough winters Uh, I think it's a a thing that happens right throughout the Scandinavian and sort of old Norse countries. You know in a bad winter you need each other, so you can't afford to be too snooty or cut your ties with everybody. There's got to be a degree of give and take.
1: In that time when machines really moved in big time it was a response to a migration of people going out of the countryside so the working community wasn't there in the same way
2: that's that's right and of course we were just seeing the tail end of that because that's been happening for 250 odd plus years hasn't it as with uh, new technologies have come in um, but yeah it was very noticeable in my childhood so your typical family farm particularly in the Eden Valley like ours, uh, until I was a young kid had had a living farm worker. Some of them were actually German prisoners of war. There was still a lot of those knocking them out. Uh, but there was living farm workers. So it was only sort of ten or fifteen years before that that maybe they'd been a maid or something like that. Who'd you know? And as they were getting old and they retired and those bonds were broken, uh, yeah, that was changing. It was just becoming a house farmhouse, is becoming just for the nuclear family, and there wasn't all these sort of strange other people living in the attic and things that did a lot of the work. So I can remember the tail end of that. Um, and yeah, we, like, we had a field called football pitch, and my granddad and dad used to talk about there being enough farm lads in our little village at Little Strickland for two football teams, and you think, hang on a minute, there's, there's not enough for a game of tennis someday, <laughs> <laughs> But I think what maybe hasn't been thought through is that as you get to a society with only 1% of the people on the land doing any farming, what is that doing to our connection to the land? What's that doing to our understanding of the land? I think it's severing it. It's, it's creating some quite severe cultural problems. Um So now when we have debates about nature in the countryside, uh, it's sometimes quite frustrating for those of us on farms because you think, hang on a minute, even sort of quite well-known commentators don't appear to understand the basics of farming anymore and you think, ooh, that's that's getting to be a problem, isn't it? And those of us that are farmers that probably until 20 years ago shut the farm gate and were glad not to see anybody pester them are now having to go hang on a minute we might have to reach out we might have to talk to the rest of society to explain these things and to engage people in them and i think that's good for both sides isn't it the more we're talking to each other the more we're listening to each other what matters the, the better
1: so instead of being a warring parties of the conservationists townies and farmers it's bringing it gently gently backed so that everybody has an understanding of one another
2: i think so and that isn't always let's be honest i'm a fell farm and i've got sheep on a fell and that's a, that's becoming contentious um that isn't always an easy conversation but if, at least if it is a conversation you can be finding ways around it and you can try to understand what the other other people that know things i don't know want and then you can start to get your head around it mm-hmm. and my my take on things like rewilding and that is whenever i've actually been to most of the leading rewilding projects and far from them being abandoned places they're actually places with quite a lot of management of cattle and pigs and other things in them Vibrant. So, that's right so so even if we were to go down that route you're still going to need a lot of people in rural communities that know how to manage grazing and how to manage cattle and, and where they should be at certain times and not at others even if all of that happens how some people wish it would happen you're still going to need a lot of cumbrian people with a lot of knowledge and a lot of ability to
1: it's like they say in London a taxi driver has knowledge right. where all the streets are. That's, that's
2: right. And I, it's I, the yeah. same in farming. That's right. And I would say two things about that. Like, yeah, we shouldn't romanticise that knowledge as been perfect because we now know it was a bit ecologically blind about some stuff. Maybe didn't know how to stop some of the changes that have happened or to ask the questions that should have been asked. The second thing I would say is I think to manage land well whether it's for nature or food production or anything else you need a lot of good people with a lot of good local knowledge that know how this soil works. So
1: Nouse, they call it
2: uh, but they? Yeah, but yeah, yeah a bit of nonsense common sense. Even the most remarkable rewilding projects there's usually somebody there who's a remarkable stockman or a land manager who can bring about the outcomes that you require because the outcomes that happened in the distant wild past were when there were aurochs and bison and things that have vanished. So uh, even in the best case scenario now, uh, we're having to artificially generate nat- some of the natural outcomes that would once have come from wilderness.
1: And it really intrigues me that particularly in this Matterdale, there seems to be quite a, a breadth of uh, enthusiasm and knowledge and quite a powerhouse of
2: genuine connectedness i'm very proud of this community we don't all see the world exactly the same way but i could within five minutes drive of it i could take you to four or five farms that are doing remarkable things planting trees and creating wetlands or salmon Claire just over the skyline over there doing a mason regenerative farming project it won't be everybody's cup of tea but you know good luck to them um yeah there's a lot of good stuff. why is that good stuff happening here i Maybe I'm naive. I feel like it's happening everywhere. Everywhere I go, people are talking to me about getting. I think I think the penny's dropped in the farming community that if we're going to play a sort of globalised cheap food game, then probably most Lake District farmers are stuffed. Absolutely. So, so so what do we have to do? Well, we have to we have to become very good at delivering what the politicians call public benefits. We're going to have to make a very convincing argument to you and everybody listening to this podcast that we genuinely are good stewards of the landscape. Um, and we're going to have to find some really inspired middle ground, aren't we, between our traditional farming, making a living and getting as much nature back into landscapes as possible. And I don't think any of us are going anywhere in a hurry. So I think, uh, if I'm honest, I think the hard, the sort of hard, sort of slightly silly rewilding stuff got, hasn't got a lot of traction. But the softer rewilding stuff that can happen in and around farming, on farms and around farming, that's winning, in a way, the argument. It's like, all right, we're standing next to a, yep. bo- a boggy bit of ground here that's really unproductive. What can I do there to create a more natural habitat? I'd fill it with willowy scrub and I can get a nice new fence up by the side of it. Um, I- I'd have to be a jerk to, to fight that. I-, I don't want to fight it. I want my kids and my family to live on a farm that's... Uh, full of life. Full of life. Can we take it that what's happening
1: here... Is sort of replicating elsewhere in the farming community.
2: Well, my my travelling in the farming community is quite limited, to be honest. I'm a very local. I have a very local life, but um, I sense from social media and other things that these conversations are happening everywhere with people that own land. Uh, and some of that's financial drivers. So if you're spending thousands of pounds a year on synthetic fertilisers, and then there's a conversation happening that you don't need that stuff if you manage your grass and your soil differently. Even if you only care about money, you're going to listen to that conversation and say, hang on a minute, what's in this? And so some of it's financial drivers. There's possibly a little bit of a division emerging between the pastoral bits of the UK where we've always managed grass and this is a, this is about some sort of tweaks of habitat around it and putting hedgerows back in and managing grass and soil better and really intensive cropping farming. That's a different kettle of fish. I mean, I've had arable farmers here in the last month and if you're producing milling wheat, it can't have any weeds in it if you want the money. Uh, you often, to sell your milling wheat, you have to sign up to a package of agronomy where they tell you exactly what inputs to use, exactly what pesticides to use. It's part of a sort of stitched up package. So some of those people are in a really difficult place for uh, possibly can do little more than tweak around the edges. Um, but certainly in my, my world, which is a sort of pastoral upland world, half the farmers I know, uh, to, to one extent or another, are engaging with these changes. There are some others who think the public are all talk and that the future will be about having the most sheep and the biggest farm. My friends in this valley and the next day have a lot of different views, but even the most intensive sheep farmers amongst them have some bits of the farm that are really good. So I won't mention any names, but I know Laddie's probably the most sheep-obsessed lad I know. But he has also one of the best wildflower hay meadows in the Lake District. He's quite capable of being both. I mm. have a lot of sheep on a fell over there and managing some of the best wildflower hay meadows in the Lake District and another part of his farm. So I think this sort of reduction of people to stereotypes of good or bad is a bit silly. I think we're, we're all at, we're all more in the middle, really. Mm. For a long time, we didn't really speak about this stuff. We've been explained by other people. We've been in other people's narratives, really, and, and they've defined us far too narrowly. So if you, I mean, if you only read the Guardian, you'd get the impression that sheep farmers in the uplands didn't care about nature and had no interest in it, and all they cared about was sheep and uh, and making money. But that doesn't reflect in any way, shape, or form the sheep farmers that I know. So yeah, I'm I'm a very very proud herdwick breeder. I'll do my damnedest over the next twenty or thirty years to have one of the best herdwick flocks I can. But I'm I'm equally as proud of my wildflower meadows with 98, actually 105 species now in because we've put some new ones in this summer. Brilliant. Uh, there's no reason why you can't be both and I, I think it's an underestimation of people really to think that they, they can't be interested in both I don't know, we could probably talk about willowy scrub there one of the first bits of the farm that we, we sort of did any infrastructure changes was in 2012 we fenced off, with Eden Rivers Trust we fenced off about a mile of Riverbanks, put 6,000 trees in. We've even had the pigs in, actually. We've been experimenting, because we went to NEP and saw the rewilding project there. The big disturber in their systems, to get a lot of the good stuff happening, is the pigs. So we had two pigs this summer, and we literally took them through every bit of woodland that we had over about a two-and-a-half-month period. And you can see what they've done. Um, just snuffled everything up, and you're going to get a reset in there of... And actually, we just saw the jay. I think the jay is going under the loose flaps that the pigs have loosened and hiding acorns. So I suspect we're going to get a load of fantastic stuff up in there. It becomes a vibrant
1: valley, which once just was fenced off with a wall, as it were, and was just openly grazed, I'd imagine.
2: Yeah, and one of the other lessons we learned is, and this has been fascinating to me, um, the first five years that we fenced these areas off, we didn't graze them at all. I thought abandoned was better, basically. Uh, And then we had a botanist uh, guy called Rob Dixon that we worked with came to do a study of the different areas of the farm and the least biodiverse bit of the farm was the bit that we'd abandoned for five years it'd been completely taken over by the rank grasses and what we hadn't understood which I'm now really into is basically that uh, grazing done in the right way, in a way that mimics nature, is actually better for biodiversity than no grazing at all. So we do two things now, which is we periodically pulse graze them with some of the native breed cattle we have, the belted galloways. And then you'll see there's some of the pig disturbance in there as well, the pig in. So what are we really talking about? It's still much scruffier than the actual field, although this field has been rested for a while. but you've got the sort of thorny scrub taken off, you've got the natural taken off of the willowy scrub. In the long run, you're going to have this sort of oaks come through and you're basically creating something much more like they would have been in nature.
1: There's some up the valley there, isn't there? There's so woodland being planted. That, up there that is.
2: There's a lot of good stuff happening just over the top. Galbra fell's been in schemes for 30 years, and you can see the native birch and things sort of creeping back up the gills. It's doing really nice. And there's grouse here. on the top as well. Ah, there's, yeah, we see a lot of grouse. There's a grouse on little uh, on, on great, great mouthful behind us. You know, that's only got the six ponies on at the moment. So there's a lot of native vegetation coming back on there. So much good stuff. And then in the flood, flood valley and the valley bottom, Danny Teasdale and the Oldswater CIC have been taking out the old canalised riverbanks and the, the old drainage models have ended and you've got a much more natural floodplain. Maybe natural isn't the right word, it's sort of halfway to what it would have been and it's changing quite rapidly over time. Interesting the word Thackthwaite, clearing of the thatch. That's right, and I said Thackthwaite because I'm, I'm, I'm being recorded and I'm being posh, we would call it Thackthut. It's always Thut. those no, Not Thwaite. Not th- so uh, <laughs> da- Douthwaite head up there we would call Dalford. Dalthford. Wow. So I'm bilingual. No, <laughs> it's very important. Just pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> and and the truth is, all around this valley, we've done a couple of crowd funders. It's a combination of a lot of people's efforts: farmers, non-farmers, the general public, the people in the agencies trying to find pots of money to help us to do things. And it's it's good. There used to be a sort of twenty years ago there was a real us and them sort of incomes locals vibe in this valley, and it was a bit fractious. And uh, a lot of us have tried to rise, put that behind us or rise above it. And um, there's a much nicer vibe where people that aren't non-farming neighbours have come and helped me plant trees. There has been a coming together over the last 20 or 30 years. Farmers, I think until about 10 years ago, you could just about get away with being a farmer and saying, well, I don't need to change. I don't need anyone to tell me anything. We've done this for a very long time. There's nothing wrong it's it's sort of abundantly clear to anybody that wants to know now that that doesn't quite cut it. We're, <laughs> we're going to have to do a bit better than that. Uh, and the minute we accept that and we're prepared to meet people halfway, then it's a different conversation, isn't it? There's no need to fall out with my non-farming neighbours that want to plant trees. Where the really fruitful middle ground is, is that we're not talking about taking the best agricultural land, the most profitable agricultural land out of production. We're talking about boundaries, we're talking about wet bits, we're talking about the floodplain. Do we really need to have a big row about that and, and resist it? No, I, I would suggest that's pretty silly, <laughs> that, that 70 80% of what all of us would want is very doable if we find the right places and we have the, we have the right... Feel? Right, right. Yeah, the right feel and the, and the right attitude to it. So uh, increasingly now, if anybody tells me we're doing something wrong, rather than shoot off at them as I might have done uh, a long time ago, I now invite them for a cup of tea. I said, come and have a walk around. To, what, tell me what I'm doing wrong and what you want me to do different and I have to say nine times out of ten I learned something from those exchanges and I and lo- they do as well I, I, and they learn as well and, and I've, I've ended up with some really good mates that I think once would have been uh, almost sort of sparring partners or enemies and that I've ended up with those people coming and helping me and uh, yeah and five ten years down the line you've done what they say and you see dragonflies off your pond and you think this is alright I, hmm. I don't I didn't need to fight this there's no need
1: no and, and you can see how uh, that attitude is permeating into the society that you you live with and
2: Oh, well, All then, your neighbours. Well, yeah, the great joy in this valley at the moment, and amongst my farming friends, is that I'm not having, I'm not falling out with everybody, and having to lecture them. That many of them are doing the same stuff. I've got neighbours that would probably claim to be ahead of me on this learning curve and to have done more than me. So, that's uh, the
1: bragging rights now. Yeah,
2: there is a different, <laughs> there is a different kind of bragging rights in this valley at the moment. So I, I built two, what I thought were two really big ponds down the valley bottom, and within a month, my neighbour, Mister Stuken, had built two bigger ones. So <laughs> I was, I was put well and truly in my place. Then <laughs> no, no, that,
1: it's a charm now and then it will soon be a lake
2: <laughs> it'll be who's got beavers first be there, yeah. <laughs> so with all these trees how, how many trees do you think you might end up planting uh i have a sort of slightly silly target in my mind now i it occurred to me one night when i was having a bath that what would it how many trees would it be if i planted one for every day i was alive and i think if i am lucky enough to live to the average lifespan of a man at 76 or something like that i think it was between 38 and 39,000 trees and i think i'll get there in the next two three four years yeah. and, and we're not talking planting a forest let's be honest we're yeah. talking about a patchwork old-fashioned lake district farm just using all your margins and, in a, a island at the moment they call about they talk about edges and hedges and I think that might be the best best catchphrase i've i've come up with so the, this whole notion of the lake district itself being bereft of trees there's so much nonsense spoken about this yeah. i keep picking up sort of guardian articles about sort of like, uplands <laughs> have no trees and i think which uplands are you talking about it's <laughs> It looks true of the Scottish Highlands when I drive through a lot of them. It looks largely true of large areas of the Pennines, where you can drive for miles and miles and never see a tree. It's not true, but mostly district valleys: the Duddon Valley, Coniston Valley, Bor- Borrowdale, Ulswater uh, Valley. Uh, there's there's so much good stuff happening, so much good tree cover. And frankly, when the environment, some of the environmental campaigners get so silly as to say things like that, it's it's only doing harm to their cause because. Most people are going to drive down those roads down the shore of Ullswater and see woodland all around them and going to think, hang on a minute, there's a mismatch (laughs) here between what's being said and what's actually there. I think where we have a very particular problem and it's a legal and a sort of cultural problem is on the commons, those big expanses of commons. They're beloved of walkers, they're beloved of a sort of cultural view of what the Lake District should be, which is this big, unfenced, free places that we used to think were wild. Um, And they're commons. They have a very particular common in... Hefted, set stocked grazing pattern on a lot of them, so there is a particular problem above the fell line about a lack of variety of habitats.
1: So the nub of it is the commons and and how they, in the next generation
2: or two, transform themselves. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I think that. I won't be speaking for all farmers here, this is my personal view, but I think there's two ways around that. So if you go and look at somebody like John Atkinson down in sort of Coniston Valley... We've, we've done him yeah, t- Country Tremendous tried. grazer, him and his neighbours, and they've got amazing fields full of biodiversity that even some of my rewilding friends admire. Uh, or, so you either go for that sort of grazing pattern, you tap into some of that brilliant common knowledge... or or frankly you need more fences and and I personally, on some of the fells that I know, would would probably fence off some of the least productive bits and I'd create some much higher value habitats up there so you get more of a patchwork, Mm. and it may be that some of those fences are just temporary, that what Mm. you're trying to do is create the sort of patchwork of different woodland or or scrub or whatever it might be and then you take those fences down after 20 or 30 years and you move them to another bit I know Lee Schofield, who's sometimes very critical of those open fells from the RSPB did a really interesting thread on Twitter about six months ago where he was showing the pictures from the 18th century and then a photograph from now. And two things jumped out, actually. The first one was how much woodland there still is, (laughs) to be (laughs) honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also there were some missing things. So when you look at the old paintings about the shores of Ullswater, for example, a lot of that had a sort of huge reed beds all on the shore. We got rid of a lot of that because of the hotels and the tourism and the the drainage. And then certainly on the lower slopes of the fells, it looks like there was more sort of scrubby type habitat. So if if that's what we had and that's what we've lost and that you know I think we just need to be smart about this. But when we when we reduce this to the sort of sheet wrecked treeless uplands, uh, frankly that's just laughable. I think we just need to stop being so dogmatic and silly and get down to some practical solutions. And, and for me for me that would be more fencing. So I, yeah. I can see I can see lots of places on fells where I could not want to gather with my dogs and could quite easily give up a bit of the fell for woodland or whatever it would be. Oh look, Hi, there's a buzzard just above us. One of the nice things on the farm is that we've been changing things and giving nature more of a chance. Is it isn't so much, re- we've had some rare things come back like little egrets and green sandpipers and other stuff that I've never seen before. But uh, well, it's a lot more of the common stuff, which I get a thrill out of. Just by having more long grass on the farm, whereas we used to have maybe one pair of kestrels on the farm, now we've got three or four pairs. used to see one heron regularly. Now I see five or six. In fact, this summer I've noticed a whole new thing on the farm. Because we're grazing so long now, uh, there's so many more uh, voles and worms and spiders and stuff that there's always three or four herons in the field wherever my sheep are grazing. And it's just something we've never seen before because it never happened. It would have kind of been enough understory. And then you're starting to think, hang on a minute, is that what herons used to do in a, in a system with bison and oryx? Did they follow that? I guess they did. Yeah. They followed them round and, and when they graze it back or they trample, suddenly the frogs and things are exposed and that's their hunting moments.
1: In the last passage of your book, you mentioned about a barn owl.
2: So I, there was barn owls on this farm when I was growing up. and My grandfather used to admire them very much. I can remember them going out through the window of the hay barn when he would get you know, getting a bale of hay. And he would sort of sneak into the hay barn as if he had no, no business disturbing an owl, which just to make me laugh because it was his barn. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they disappeared in the sort of 1990s, so certainly off our farm for several years. And then when we we put, um, you can hear a branch coming off an oak tree over there, I've got a fencing crew working on putting a new hedgerow in. Um, but yeah, when we fenced off some of these areas with Eden Rivers Trust in 2012, within about six months of the fences going up and there being some longer grass, there was an explosion of voles. And we had a breeding pair, of, the next summer we had a breeding pair of barn owls and I can remember looking at my dad and my mum's face and my, my wife and kids' faces and just everybody was united with the smile on the face. And I think we all thought, oh, hang on, this is quite good. What, what have we been so defensive about this for? This actually makes you feel proud and good about what you're doing. And I think we were feeling a bit battered and bruised at that time about all the negativity about farming and we'd wreck this and we'd wreck that. And there was just a bit of a lightbulb moment in our family where we looked at each other and thought, we can do quite a lot of this. Let's just <laughs> let's just keep going. What, who doesn't want a barn owl hunting outside the back door <laughs> on a farm? It's the loveliest thing ever. And it's, it. It doesn't pay... You know, a barn owl doesn't pay the bills, let's be honest, but it can sure as hell put a smile on your face on a summer's evening. <laughs> they're like ghosts drifting across the oh, landscape. They are, they are ghostly, and, and they're sensationally beautiful. And I... Uh, in some ways, we're just getting back to what my granddad did, really, to have that pride in the place and to to get your kicks out of what's on that place, the wild things that you see, and they, they make you, not financially richer, but they they can make you happy. That's not mince words here. We're, we live in one of the most beautiful valleys in England. We're incredibly privileged to be able to walk out of our house, walk around our fields. There's a lot of people locked in their houses at the moment because of COVID. You know, we're ridiculously lucky to have this life. OK, we've worked hard to pay for it and still paying for it, but... Um but we're very lucky and yeah I think maybe the secret to a happy life is realising when you when you're winning. What would your
1: dad and your granddad
2: feel about where you're going now? I think uh, they would want to know what my sheep made last at the weekend. I got a tup to four and a half thousand pounds, and average fifteen hundred pounds with my tops, which is better than either of them ever did. So <laughs> I, I think I could look them in the eye and say i was still a, de- a half decent farmer. And I think they would, they were, I, ho- I hope they would look at the farm and see that it was deep, dark green and full of grass. And, and increasingly, it's very well fenced. I hope it looks looked after and loved. And there'd be little bits that they might not quite understand, like why well, we'd moved a river, or probably a bit shocked that we built a few ponds and. But I think, I think on balance, I would, I would be able to look them in the face and say I'm not doing so bad, Dad and Grandad and I think my Grandad would love the wildlife side of it, and yeah, yeah. I think my Dad would say, who the hell paid for all these fences? <laughs> <laughs> That's living in a bigger world. And I think they would have
1: uh, been quite chuffed in, quite honestly, because taking over a farm is quite a daunting thing anyway, but you've actually transformed it in a revolutionary way.
2: Oh, well,
1: my Dad, uh, when my Dad
2: was dying, I. Uh, I hope i'm not fooling myself on this i think it meant a lot to my dad that everything he'd worked for was carrying on and he knew i was a bit a bit weird and a bit different and i might do some different stuff but i said he said he gave it felt to me like he gave me his blessing to do that the baton moved yeah. on and they were happy and he said don't i remember him saying don't fight the world you don't have to fight the world you just bend when you have to and be adaptable and you don't have to prove anything to anybody and i think that was a lovely thing to to give us as a legacy rather than a sort of fixed, you have, you have to do this, we have to do it this way. He didn't do that. He said, no, you do what you have to do.
1: We're higher up on the farm now. I can see Sunday Crag and through to Red Screes and um, Place Fell with the sunlight on it at the head of Ullswater, but you can't see the lake from here. There's cloud on Blencathra over to the north. But I'm with it, James, and he's uh, reconstituting a bit of collapsed wall. So what are you doing at the moment
2: then, James? Well, I'm just putting a gap up, really, from an old wall that's got tumbled down. There's actually quite a lot of good stone in it with good faces on. But it's uh, it's in better days and... um, just at one end of the bit where we're going to plant these thousand trees going down in a sort of shelter belt. And we just need to put this back up and make it stock proof.
1: A lot of it is beck stone, rounded stone. that has been gathered from the becks. Um, and you've got different sizes of stones.
2: That's right. So what we basically start out with our big rough cobbly stuff in the bottom. And we're sort of working up in an A shape going upwards a little bit, narrows with each round. And then we'll be looking for a good through stone. Maybe when we get nearly two foot up we'll put a good through stone every two or three feet. Uh, and then when we get, we'll, we'll constantly set it, the sort of coin stones off the top we'll set them to one side so we've got them ready for when we get to the top and yeah and this landscape's divided up by these walls so you can see them creeping up the fell sides in all directions there's a lovely nice round one goes up above all Rover over yonder that's on a lot of postcards and things looking at this partitioning and thinking
1: about management would there be three things that policy changes that you could see would make a significant difference
2: I, I, I probably—I'm just speaking for myself here. I think our national parks should be better places for nature and for looking after traditional farming. I don't think we can have this sort of just let anything happen here model go. Uh, the first thing I would do to make the Lake District better for nature is I would ban commercial forestry in, within it. Over time, I would shift all of that plantation forestry we're looking at in the distance, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of it. I would shift that to broadleaf woodland. Um, maybe sort of manage woodland with some kind of dynamic grazing in it of native breed cattle or something Um, the second thing I would do uh, in these landscapes is I think we need to get the patchwork put back in of habitats so I would would focus the schemes on getting hedgerows back in and wetland back in and ponds back in um, and getting as many trees and hedgerows back into these landscapes as we can I think it's a simple way of winning and I think the third thing and it's, pretty, it's probably my main obsession after my Herdwick sheep, uh, is the, really encourage the focus on soil health and getting out the sort of nasty chemical inputs that I just don't think have a place in a pastoral farming system, really. I don't think we need them anymore. Uh, and let's, let's get back to a pastoral system that's much more biodiverse, much more nature, much more appropriate for where we are, and let's... Uh, at the very least get back to the skills and knowledge of our grandfathers and ideally let's add into that some new science our ecology and how to graze better and how to look after soil and it's, it's within grasp for us to do that and there's two fundamental things, national sort of policy things we need to get right which is we can't sign that American free trade deal we're going to have to protect the English countryside, the British countryside from that kind of uh, race to the bottom, it's a disaster in every way, shape or form so we can't do that um, and then I think we're going to have to rethink the place of farming and food in our culture. So you just have to go in the house for 10 minutes and turn the telly on and the supermarket will be bragging about selling things cheaper than it was last week. And you think, hang on a minute, you cannot have that downward pressure all the time without acknowledgement of the consequences and the uh, the impact on the land and on the animals that you're talking about. Cheap so food comes with- at a great cost. It comes at a very great cost, uh, a horrible cost actually. If you go and see what, what the American farming and food system does to their landscapes, why are we even thinking about bringing that here? We would only do that through apathy or ignorance and we're not ap- apathetic or ignorant, so let's fight it. I think 90% of British people in the latest poll agreed that we should never lower our environmental or food standards. Most of us think we should raise them and that, and that means opting out of that race to the bottom and supporting something better. You can hear two ravens going over there. I think ravens are my favourite bird these days. Whenever you're out on a fellside or you're putting a wall up, there's always a raven somewhere around the board. And they do a lot of chasing each other, don't they? They seem yeah. to chase each other off the territory, that's what them two's on with.
1: Your relationship with your neighbours and elders, as it were, includes people like Mason Weir from Dathathed, who recognised in you a, a, a great talent for communication. He'd witnessed changes on his farm, the loss of things, and he said to you, and you mentioned it in your English pastoral, tell them, James, tell them what's, what we've lost.
2: Yeah, I feel like I feel like old men have been telling me that their whole life. Like, go on, son. You 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 seem to be able to get people to listen. Tell them what's happening. And um, of course, I can't do that all all on my own. I'm I'm just one person writing books and looking after his farm. But uh, I think when I wrote my first book, I wanted to tell people who we were through our voice and our eyes, and that was a very proud book. And then. Uh, yeah, that went incredibly well. I sold got how many hundred thousand books around the world in lots of countries, and yeah, I have got an audience. And I, I think on the second book, I felt like I had something of a responsibility to to tell a slightly more difficult story uh, about what has happened on farms, and, and to try to be tr- truthful enough about it that I could that I knew I told the truth. And um, and yeah, maybe use this moment I've got where people seem to listen to me a little bit. You know, do my best to fight for things that need to be fought for.
1: Well, you certainly communicate to me and lots of people have been motivated by what you've said and um, I certainly hope that you'll continue with this process looking after this land and communicating into the future in your writing. It's majestic. We, we love it. Now, we got to that critical moment. It's our quick fire questions and, um, and it'd be intriguing to see how you
2: react. Anyway, what was your first Lakeland memory? didn't think I was going to say this, but I've had a fresh one come to mind. I can remember um, munching on fruit pastels at Troutbeck Auction just over the hill while the sheep were being sold at a store sheep sale and listening to the old sheep dealers and the old farmers all in the leggings and the wet weather clothes because it was raining chewing the fat on what was happening and um, just hanging out with them and thinking it would always mm-hmm. be like that and it would always be like that and of course it isn't always like that. The, the auction went 30 years ago and that's a whole other world now. What's your favourite lake's view? My favourite lakes view is the one you're looking at. I absolutely adore that view through there, so you're looking through to Patterdale and uh, Deepdale and all them valleys over yonder. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I spend a lot of time up here because my herd with live up here a lot of the winter. Uh, I think that's the loveliest view ever. I was reading a thing from Robert um, McFarlane, whose family live locally, don't they? I think the Norwegians call that a land skein. It's, uh, you know, like the skeins of geese, the V's going backwards. Uh, They call that a land because you have those sort of blue mountains that go back in layers into the distance. So it's a lovely Norwegian word for that.
1: Have you got a Cumbrian hero or
2: heroine, dead or alive? Um, You'll never listen to this, so I can get away with it. I'll tell you who the Cumbrian I most admire because he's an absolute wizard at what I do. Anthony Hartley at Turner Hall Farm at Seathwaite in the Duddon Valley. And I hope Hellie never hears this because he'd be embarrassed, but he's a tremendous, tremendous breed of herdwick sheep, the greatest. And there's several of us who would like to uh, knock him down a peg or two, but we have not managed it. And on Saturday, he kicked our asses massively and broke the world record for herdwick sheep.
1: Brilliant, brilliant. On a completely different tack again, uh, Wainwright or Wordsworth? Uh, Wordsworth, all day long. Red squirrel or herdwick?
2: I like both but it has to be heard, doesn't it <laughs> have you a favourite fell yes I have and it's just because it's home really it's, it's Great Melfall behind us I spend a lot of time looking at it or being on it or up it I do like going up Great Dodd and doing our gathering as well but there's a lot of views I love off Great Melfall and uh, I don't get many quiet times in the year but if I ever get a couple of hours of a night in the summer where it's quiet I, as I wrote about in my first book I'll go and sit on, sit on that hill end Yeah. And you're looking over. Above the the trees. Yeah. And you can see the Eden Valley that way and you can see Matterdale this way and everything, everything that we know and everything we've ever been is is seen off the top of that fell. So what's not to like?
1: Whatever matters, matters here and you go to see
2: it. Uh, Have you a favourite Cumbrian book? Oh, this is is a good one. I nearly picked The Guide to the Lakes by Wordsworth because it says some of the most important things anybody has ever said about Cumbria, about the perfect republic of shepherds and why this landscape matters in a sort of anthropological sense. But no, I'm going to say Peter Rabbit by Beatrix Potter because I think she's not not just famous, I think she might be the best writer that we've, we've ever laid claim to. I think those books are masterpieces of economy and discipline and tightness and simplicity. And I think she's she's almost so famous and so loved for other reasons. I think people often forget how good a writer she was.
1: And she was a hardened, honest farming person. Yeah, she's one.
2: I I wouldn't cross the road to meet most of the other Cumbrian great writers, but I would. I would walk. I would walk to the West Coast to go meet her. Fabulous. I'd love to have met her. I don't know whether I'd have got on with her, but I would have loved to have met her. Um, What would be your perfect Lakeland day? My perfect Lakeland day would be to take a, a good trailer load of sheep to Patterdale Dog Day or, or Matterdale and St John's in the Vale Sheep Show because it's both things uh, and to drop a few red rosettes for the winning sheep and they're hopefully the champion at Dog Day. That's, that's one of my favourite days of the year and every, a lot of my best friends and family are there and it's, it's a moment of loveliness in my life, is that? All bragging rights in this valley for the next 12 months are, are won or lost on that day. <laughs> Absolutely. we'll pay attention to that in future. I've won it. Whatever, I've won the herdic championship maybe four times, and the mm. overall championship once or twice a year. Wow! My dad used to do a, try and win the baking competition. I think it was the shepherd's baking competition, and was very proud of some bread that he came second with <laughs> one year. But there's a fella called Peter Bland in Grassmere who kept beating him, which was disappointing. Uh, what is your favourite Lakeland food? Which follows on. Uh, my favourite Lakeland food would be. It would be probably fish and chips from the little chippy in Penrith. Not not for every male, but just when you're in the mood for it, is there any finer food? I don't know that there is.
1: <laughs> uh, is there one lesson you would pass on to the next generation of farmers? One
2: lesson? I would say buy the best tups your money can
1: buy. <laughs> is that it? Preferably off me. <laughs> yeah, so... If you were Prime Minister for the day, what one thing would you
2: do to sustain the landscapes and the future culture of Cumbria? I would ring Donald Trump up and I would say, Donald, I'll do a trade deal with you, no problem. But it will not involve the selling down the river of our farming, our food and our environmental standards. And if that's the cost of the deal, stuff it. Um, OK, when the day comes and a few
1: friends gather, might there be a location dear to your heart that will be your last resting place?
2: I fancy being buried up here, actually. We're on the spot. Yeah, maybe just on that hill end up there. There's a good bit of deep soil. If you would bury me on here, I'd be as happy as laddie. But but if that isn't possible, my granddad's buried in Matadale in churchyard and uh, somewhere near him we'd be all right, I know.
1: We know we're on the hallowed ground. Thank you for your time, James. We'll let you
2: get on and do something useful now. Well, thank you very much and it's been nice meeting you both. Yeah.
0: Journey's end, and we're back where we started. We're back outside the farmyard here. Mark, we thought we were going to be here for two hours. We've been here for about six so far. <laughs> yeah. It's the shortest walk. Oh, it's the longest ride we've had, actually. Well, the first and only time I've been on a quad bike, I think. <laughs> yes,
1: we were hanging on like grim death on the back of that, going across those steep banks.
0: <laughs> a wide-ranging conversation. Lovely to see so many of the projects um, that i picked up in his book on the farm here he's embraced the
1: nature here and he's recognised that actually the trade-off between creating wildlife habitats and good management of farmland there isn't actually a trade-off mm. it's a win-win
0: Yeah, he flags in the book and he's flagged today that this false dichotomy whether it's either rewilding or it's farming and actually there is so much space and land that farming some pockets of it in a wildlife-friendly way on a large scale could be revolutionary.
1: If throughout Britain farmers farmed in this way, we would have a healthy environment, we'd have healthier food, and the migration of animals and birds and so forth would be intensified and blossom. What's done locally affects nationally and internationally, so Mm. we need more of this kind of thing. This is a remarkable statement of the future.
0: A hugely inspiring wonder with James and lovely to see this land being nurtured back to... Full vigour, I'd say. Yeah, full vigour. Right, the usual housekeeping. This is episode 38. For our previous 37 episodes, you can go to www.countrystrides.co.uk. We are on facebook and twitter mark oh, at country stride one at country stride one we're still waiting for at country stride to become available if you'd like to get in contact with us if you'd like to share any thoughts about this podcast or any of the others you can do so by visiting the website fill in the form there say hello to us after wet weather delayed play we've got plenty of podcasts lined up now and um, some fabulous ones including heavy horses Postman's paths anything else
1: Uh, well we'll be looking at harriet martineau i believe
0: yes great walker so plenty to look forward to in the weeks ahead but for now and from james rebanks lovely farm here in matterdale we're saying goodbye and thank you all for listening